You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. This morning, we're going to be starting a new sermon series, Walking Through the Book of 1 Peter. It is titled, Living Stones, Building a Spiritual House in an Unspiritual Land. So we're going to be discussing really the things that God has called his church and his people to embody. So this morning, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1. If you have a Bible with you, go ahead and turn there with me. If you don't have one, there should be one underneath a seat in front of you. And if you do not own a copy of the scriptures in your home, please take that with you, that Bible with you today as a gift from us. If you're able, go ahead and stand for the reading of God's word. Again, this is 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1 to 2. Hear the word of the Lord. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, I can't, y'all. I did so good first service, y'all. I'm from Alabama. I don't know. Okay, Asia and Bithynia. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is God's word. You may be seated. Gotta love those Alabama mistakes. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Uh, Well, good morning. Uh, It's good to see you all. Um, It's such a, like I said before, it's such a fresh and beautiful thing to be able to see all your faces. And even though I can't see your faces on the live stream, we're thankful that you are here Um, If you don't know me, my name is Ty Gaston. I serve as one of the elder candidates here at Providence Community Church. It is a grace to be able to do so. And uh, like Jenna said, we're beginning what's uh, a new sermon series for us titled 1 Peter, uh, building a, uh, it's called Living Stones, building a spiritual house in an unspiritual land. And uh, the reason why we went, for, uh, we went to First Peter uh, about a year ago, and I'll explain that more in a minute, but First Peter is a lightning rod for truth for our time and will bring, uh, our current time will bring clarity in a time of serious darkness and division that we see in our country today. And before you feel like this was done in reaction to some of the things going on in our country, I will have you know uh, and remind you that our sermon calendars for the entire year are always prepped in November of the year prior. So... Um, this sermon series was uh, planned pre-COVID, uh, it was planned pre-racial uh, disparities in our country, and it was planned pre-political circus ha- uh, happening right now. So this, ser- this sermon series, First Peter, was planned almost a year ago, and to God's wonderful, beautiful, sovereign plan, it is a lightning rod for truth for us today. And we believe that the heart of this letter seeks to unite, affirm, and encourage, and empower believers in Christ during the many trials that we face, and that at the end of the day, our hardships lead to holiness, and that too often we experience suffering and then try to fit God into that suffering instead of experiencing God and then looking at our suffering in light of him. Too often we get down that road, and Peter teaches us that we are to direct our gaze to the Lord and fit our suffering in light of him. Both individually and collectively, we are being built up. And this is the name, this is the title for the sermon series. This is that of 1 Peter 2. We are being built up as living stones into the church in a land that wants nothing to do with it. So nonetheless, we are excited and we look forward to this uh, sermon series in 1 Peter. Uh, but before I get started, would you pray with me? 
Father God, we, uh, we come before you this morning and we are so grateful that you, uh, you woke us up and that we have the means of grace of being able to gather. Even if that means that there are people gathering in their living rooms, even if that means that we're here on the Sunday morning, we are grateful that we get to gather and hear your preached word. It is the final and only authority in our life. It is the only truth that we can really hold on to. And so we are grateful that we get to talk about it and sit underneath it this morning. So God, would you open the eyes of our hearts that we may see you clearly. God, I pray that for me, preaching your word, that you would help me to speak boldly. God, and that we would all leave encouraged and empowered to do the work of ministry. It's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen. So if many, uh, so if you don't know this, uh, I, I, I say it often and other times that I preach, but I am uh, currently in the United States Coast Guard. I spent four years active duty and I'm now currently reservist. I've, it's going on 10 years now. So almost at halfway mark before I can say I can officially retire. Uh, but um, I'm almost there. I'm almost there, almost cresting that hill. But um, the very beginning of my time in the Coast Guard, I, I was uh, stationed in my first unit in Mobile, Alabama. Now... Don't do that. Uh, now, there, there were uh, some people don't know if that was either reward or punishment. Um, uh, I joked in the first service that it was both for me. I had my, my wife and I had a wonderful time in Alabama, uh, but it was also uh, very different for us as well. Um, it's, it's the only place that I've ever been to that when Saturday happens, you know, college football games happen, the entire town shuts down. It's weird. Just, it's just... I mean, I just want to go eat food, right? I can't do it. But I was stationed on what, you know, most people call a ship, but in the Coast Guard, we call them cutters. And so uh, for us, anything over, you know, four to six feet is going to be a cutter. And so I was stationed on a 175-foot cutter that worked on uh, the, the buoys that line the mobile ship channel. And so in other words, our primary mission was making sure that we would go out and service these buoys. Now, if you don't have any perspective, these things are gigantic. And when I say gigantic, I mean, if we put one in this room right now, it would stretch from the floor to the ceiling, which is about 20 feet high. Uh, They are 10 feet wide and they weigh upwards of two to 3,000 pounds. And these buoys line the ship channels for ships to be able to get to, you know, to bring produce and goods uh, to our cities. Now, these buoys are also, you know, they anchored to the bottom with six-ton blocks of cement, an inch-and-a-quarter steel chain that really keep these things in place. And so our job was to make sure that they were on the right GPS location, that they weren't rusting away. One of the things we would do is we would pull everything on board of our ship, and we would have to scrape the buoys, all the barnacles, off of it, and it was absolutely disgusting. The worst thing I've ever done. I mean, you're you're scraping these barnacles, and as you're doing, it's like the stuff's flying off and hitting you in the face. It's absolutely disgusting. But it was hard work, and it was just what I needed. It was just what I personally needed. Now that was our primary mission to make sure everything was going right with the mobile ship channel. Now, that was not all that we did. That was about 99% of it. But I'll never forget, there were a couple times that this happened, but one in particular that uh, the night prior while we were underway, we get this uh, distress call over the radio saying that a man had fallen off board, a tanker in the Mobile Ship Channel, and that we need to go help look for this man. That maybe he was, maybe he had gotten lost and jumped on one of the islands that's in the Mobile Ship Channel, and we need to go help save him, or maybe we need to go find him, whatever it may be. But... So we, we set out and we started doing this, uh, this pattern across, across about five miles where we're trying to figure out, see if we can see the guy or any evidence of the guy. 
And, but there was never a moment in my time there at that unit that, I, that, that any of us stopped to say, why are we doing this? Like, shouldn't the helicopters be flying out? They can cover more space than us. Shouldn't all the small boat stations out there be, uh, be deployed to go look for this man? Shouldn't this, shouldn't that, isn't that their job? That's not our job. Our job is to do the buoys. This is making my trip longer. I just want to get home to my wife. There was never a moment that we said that because at the end of the day, while each one of our units have individual siloed missions, they all, uh, they all accomplish one single mission, and that is to save lives. So there was never a moment that I was like, man, gosh, I'm just supposed to be servicing these buoys so I can get home to my wife. No, the concern was that we would save lives. So our, our buoy tenders were saving lives. Our helicopters were saving lives. Our small boats were saving lives. Everybody united together under one banner to find one single life. It was one goal, one mission. And at the end of the day, we are being taught by Peter that churches, though different, have one mission. And that Paul echoed a very similar message in his letter to the church at Corinth when he said in 1 Corinthians 15 that the gospel is of first importance. And mind you, this is a man who wrote 75% of the New Testament and was responsible for many of our theological standpoints. But he said of first importance is the gospel. And Peter, in his letter, wants to remind us that more than anything else, including relief from any suffering or trial, that Christ is our end. And to do that, he's going to begin with a greeting in his letter that sets the tone for the rest of it. And this morning, I believe that this scripture shows us four things. Really, it shows us more than that. Uh, this, this, uh, even though it's two verses, there's a lot. There's a lot in here. In fact, John Piper, when he preached through the book of 1 Peter, he spent four weeks on these first two verses alone. It's a, there's a lot here. There's so much that's said about God. There's so much that's said about man and the church. And we need to, we want to camp out here. But for us, we feel like it says four things. That the gospel unifies us. The gospel sanctifies us. The gospel anchors us for obedience. And the gospel provides us with grace and peace. All right. Let's get to work. First Peter chapter 1, verse 1 says this. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those that are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, we'll stop there. I think it's important to consider the context of what's being written here. First Peter is written to the elect exiles of the dispersion, which is the name given to the Jews who had either, a couple things, either been sent away from Rome during an uprising of a Jew-Gentile conflicts under Claudius earlier, or they were those Jews that lived in Gentile lands but were cast out and, and were cast out of modern-day Palestine. But either way, we knew that this was a name to describe Jews that were living in some sort of sojourning effect of their life. But it would be a temptation and wrong to think that he's only addressing Jews. No, he's addressing uh, Gentiles that were also converted. He's addressing that, uh, that the dispersion in modern-day Turkey or Asia Minor was really not just made up of Jews that had converted, but also Gentiles. So you had Jews that were converted from a life of legalism and Old Testament tradition and Pharisaical notions. And you have uh, Gentiles that were converted from licentious lifestyles that only seek to please self. You had a myriad of different uh, people that were represented in all of these churches. He wrote to five different areas. 
And this ancient world that he was writing to was rife with division between ethnicities, nations, and tribes. And even more than that, they were under Roman occupation and had to deal with these diverse groups underneath one empire. And even more than that, there was some serious, serious, major uh, religious persecution underneath Nero, who was a, an awful man that wanted nothing else but to destroy Christians. And ultimately, he would be the reason why Peter was martyred under Nero. But Peter begins by unifying all of these Christians in all of these different region, regions by writing them one singular letter to address them and, uh, and giving them one singular greeting. Now, we see in Paul, Paul writes to individual churches more often than not, and Peter, even though he could do that, he doesn't do that. Instead, Peter writes to five different areas, likely multiple churches, and sends his letter to be dispersed in all of them. And he's greeting them in all one single way, even though there's different races that are represented, different theological frameworks that are represented, different political agendas that are represented. He's addressing them as one thing, as elect exiles, as believers in Christ. He's addressing them with one single banner. And this is important because coming from Peter, uh, one of the things that we know he struggled with was this Gentile inclusion. Peter's the first one to see in Acts chapter 10, uh, Gentile converts in Caesarea and struggles to accept it. We see this. The Lord gives Peter a vision about accepting Gentiles into the fold and Peter calls them unclean and that shouldn't happen. And the Lord says, you don't tell me what's unclean. You do what I said. And, you know, Peter, being a knucklehead, doesn't want to listen to the Lord like always. And Peter, finally, we see him accept it and see that it's beautiful. In Acts chapter 10, verses 34 through 35, Peter records fi that Peter finally receives the truth of God's inclusion of all people in Christ after a vision he's given. And he exclaims that he finally understands that God shows no partiality, but extends the grace of the gospel to all. And this is a radical position for, the, for a first century Jew to take in a world rife with racial, religious, and political conflict. Which leads me to my first point. The gospel unifies us in a land of division. We know that even though Peter understood this to be true, he struggled to work this out in his everyday life. In Galatians chapter, uh, chapter 4, we see that Peter is giving partiality to the circumcised party, that he's mingling with the Gentiles. He sees a group of people that he um, aspires to either be or he looks up to or he holds in high esteem, and he shows partiality to them by abandoning his crew and going to the, going to the, the new people that arrived at the dinner. Paul's, and Paul rebukes him. Stand, he withstands him in his face in Galatians for showing these, this partiality. And Paul's rebuke was not couched in modern political jargon or based on an emotional plea. Rather, he did, and also he didn't merely address equality. He, he didn't say, hey, you're not treating them equal. He didn't say that, hey, you're being insensitive or you're being racist. He didn't say, you're a bigot for doing this. Instead, Paul's rebuke to Peter and really everyone present was that their conduct was not in step with the gospel. It's, that is far more weighty. He said, your actions are not representative of your belief in Christ. The unity that Christians have in the midst of a land of division is purchased and made possible by the gospel and any conduct that breathes disunity or partiality is not in step with the gospel. This means that any identity we take as primary in place of who we are in Christ opens the door for division. 
We are living in a world where tribalism is king. I mean, it's so clear. All you have to do is turn the TV on, read an article on any platform. Tribalism is king. We define ourselves by race, political agenda, Enneagram number, theological framework, etc. It goes on and on and on and on. This tribalism as our primary identity causes division, disunity, and hate. And none of these tribes that we ascribe to primarily commit themselves to love, but rather breed exclusion. They say, if you don't look like me, sound like me, believe the things that I do, then you are not welcomed into my community. And even if you are, you got to earn your keep. As believers in Christ, our primary identity falls underneath the banner of the gospel and that we've been welcomed into the family of God. No longer do we primarily identify by the same way that the world identifies people. In fact, Paul in his letter to the church of Corinth said that no longer are we to look at man according to the flesh. Furthermore, Jesus in John chapter 13 verses 34 through 35 makes it clear what our primary identity and mission as a church should be. And it says this, <clears throat> just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Jesus did not say by your race, everyone will know that you're my disciple. He did not say by your Enneagram number, people will know that you're my disciple. He did not say because you're Republican, people will know that you're my disciple. And he did not say by how, and importantly, how aggressive and savvy you are defending your cause on social media that people will know that you're my disciple. He did not say that. Rather, Jesus makes it abundantly clear by saying, what is your primary identity? Disciple of Christ. How will people know? Love them. Very clear. It's very simple. Anything outside of that is not just wrong. It is out of step with the gospel. It does not reflect what we believe in. This means that love, patience, care, and gentleness are traits that are vital to making the gospel known to the community around us and validating what we believe in. There is no room in the gospel for tribalism. In fact, the very notion that we would self-identify as our primary identity as anything other than what we are in Christ is both a disgrace and cheapens the very gospel that we believe in. Does that mean that our race, theology, political position, or gender are not not important? Of course not. It just means that they're not primary. It just means that we're not defined solely by that, that that our, our identity is found in who we are in Christ, and that the church should be a refuge for all people everywhere to receive the blessing of being treated with dignity and respect on the basis of their humanity alone, that they were made in the image of God, image and likeness of God, the Imago Dei. Secondarily, the church is a place of unified humility underneath the gospel because we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and therefore we are all called to repent and believe that Jesus saves sinners and is the Lord of our life. By looking to the gospel, the spirit creates a place among us that is both diverse and unified underneath the mighty hand of God. And given that this amount of, uh, given the amount of diversity within the scope of Peter's letter, I mean, think about it. Like if you have Gentiles that are converted from licentiousness and Jews that are converted from legalism, do you not think that they probably don't see God the same way? They probably have little nuanced differences like many of us do. But Peter addresses them the same as elect exiles, as believers in Christ. We fall underneath the banner of the gospel. 
and that given the amount of diversity within the scope of the, of the people that Peter is writing, we can be sure that he sought to unify the people underneath our only hope. That's Jesus. Point number two, the gospel sanctifies us in a land of corruption. So 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2 says this, um, at least the first part, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit. The entire weight of the Trinity is working together to conform us to the image of Christ Jesus. And we see first this foreknowledge of God the Father. And we know that like any good father, the foreknowledge of God carefully and lovingly guides our steps through welcome triumph and reluctant trial to make us more like Jesus. That Peter reminds us that ultimately God is in control. That in other words, God sees his church. He knows who are his. He has not left you out to dry or left anything to chance. And we see this in John chapter 10, verse 27 through 30. This is Jesus talking. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. As a father myself, I know my children. There is no mistaking for me who my children are. I, there, I had a little bit of a, a little bit of a scare the other day. Um, not, not a crazy one, but just a, I guess a, my daughter just started going to school and I'm worried about everything bad that could happen scare. So, and just so you know, like when I go to pick my kids up after school, there's, and they're, they're back walkers. So when they come out of the fence, there's never a time where I'm thinking to myself like, oh, well, hope I get a good one today. No, I, I know who are mine. So when they walk out of that gate, I know exactly who to grab and who not to. Now, the other day, whenever I was, uh, uh, picking my, my kids up, they, they, they release them based on grades. So youngest, first to oldest, kinder, kinder first, second, third, fourth, and then fifth, last. Well, um, I'm sitting there waiting. I, I know I'm early. I got there 10 minutes early just in case, but that still doesn't stop me from stressing out. And I walk up, I wait, kid, the younger kids come out. Um, my, daughter's, my daughter who's in kinder, she doesn't come out. Uh, first graders come out, then second graders where my son is, he comes out and he meets me and he, sa- and he says, daddy, where's Lauren? And I was like, I don't know, bud. I, I guess, uh, you know, I guess she just got in the wrong line or something like that. And then the third graders come out. Then the fourth graders come out. Then the fifth graders come out. And I'm like, in my head, I, like I start to feel that heart flutter. I'm like, Ooh, what's going on here? And one of the ladies turns and looks at me and says, and says, are you, are you still waiting for someone? And uh, at that point, my, like, my eyes just start to fill with tears. And I'm just like, yes, I'm waiting for my daughter. And she was like, well, what grade is she in? I was like, kinder. She was like, well, they already came out. I mean, and you can only imagine the amount of scenarios running through my mind at this point. And so they, they, she gets on the radio, she calls, and they're like, no, she's not here. And they call someone else, no, she's not here. And I'm like, the more and more I hear no, the more and more tears start to fill my eyes. And I'm like, what in the world is going on here? And finally, someone pipes, pipes in and says, oh, yeah, yeah, here she is. She, uh, she got in the wrong line. And there were a couple kids that came, you know, and they were walking her out. And there were a couple kids that came out before her. And then my daughter came. And when I saw my daughter, it was one of the most beautiful things I'd ever seen in a while because I was in such despair. But one thing that I did know is that was my daughter. And that was my son. No other kids would have been acceptable at that point. I know who my children are. Likewise, 
God knows who are his and who are not. And because he knows who his children are, God has never left you out of his reach. God has not abandoned you. Ultimately, God is in control. And we learn that it's not just the foreknowledge of God the Father that's helping uh, conform us to the image of his son, but also the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. And just as he always does, he is using this world of division and corruption to sanctify or set apart his children. Peter is greeting these peoples as exiles or outcasts and telling them that this is by God's design and for his glorious purposes. He intends to use the church as a beacon of hope in a, in a dark and vile world. Now, this is difficult and it's a hard pill to swallow because when we are, in, when we, when we are being sanctified by God, it's, it's hard to walk through. Because sometimes we just don't understand it. We don't know why God would even make this decision. Something that seems so right, you're not resolving. You ever felt that way? Where you're like, I don't see any reason why you can't do this. There's nothing stopping you. But for whatever reason, by God's design and God's sovereign, fatherly hand, through the sanctification of the Spirit, he is making us more like Jesus, even if we don't see it. And that this option, this avenue is so much better than the alternative. And that's that God sits idly by as we are ravaged to no end. That I, I, whenever I talk to people that don't believe in Christ, I, I'm, I tell them, like, listen, removing God out of, this, out of the equation for suffering doesn't solve the problem. You still have suffering. There's just no hope. If you remove God from the equation, it doesn't make it better. It makes it worse. That's the alternative. The alternative is that you're just ravaged to no end with no hope. But instead, we are reminded that God, for whatever reason, allows things to come into our life that we may not only know him better, but be a beacon into the world, a beacon of hope. I remember um, this, this topic of God's sovereignty and his hand working throughout our lives to shape us, to make us more like him, to, to, to really align our hearts with his, I'm, I'm reminded of this time, and I, I said it at the last service, I, I know I'm using a lot of examples with my children, but, well, I got the mic, so I'm going to keep doing it. But my, my son, he was born with what's called bilateral club feet. So in other words, uh, if you can see my feet, he's born and his feet look like that, and they're turned a little bit inwards. And uh, they really, they're called club feet because they look like, well, golf clubs. And uh, they're normal, they're, they're normal feet, maybe a little bit smaller, but they... Uh, there's nothing wrong with them. They're just out of place. And so they have to stretch them. And I remember when, you know, when he was born and we took him to see the orthopedist surgeon in Oakland, California, we went to children's hospital and the doctor, uh, her name is Dr. Sabatini. She was one of the greatest gifts that God ever gave us. She was amazing and made us feel like we weren't alone in this. And I'll never forget when she walked us through this process and she was saying like, listen, what you're going to have to do is we're going to have to go through what's called serial casting. And you're going to, each week, you're going to come back and we're going we're gonna to stretch his foot just a little bit more and then cast it, come back another week, stretch it a little bit more, recast it. And we'll do that for eight weeks and then I'll have to go through surgery. And uh, I was like, good, I'm game. I, as long as this works. But I'll never forget that first moment when we're sitting in that casting room and she's like, okay, listen, you and your wife are going to have to hold your son down. And I don't know if you've ever, like, tried to hold down a baby, but it, there's, like, this perception of strength with babies that's weird, right? Like, you know, as an adult, I can overpower you, but for some reason, you're hulking out, and I can't, I can't control you. It's weird. So she was like, listen, you get on one shoulder, your wife get on the other shoulder. And, she, and we do, 
And she starts to she starts to bend his foot. And I mean, at this point, my son just he starts screaming and he's upset. And he's getting to that point where you can't even uh, like he can't even breathe. He's not making any noise. It's that silent scream, that silent cry. His face turns blue. And I remember thinking to myself how like how I didn't want him to experience that how I was upset of the pain that he was experiencing in that moment. But I also simultaneously thought to myself, but son, if you knew what I knew, if you knew that the serial casting and the surgeries you're going to go through is going to lead to you ultimately living a normal life where you will run, play, jump, and, and kick soccer balls alongside your other friends like nothing ever happened, if you knew that this leads to that, you would gladly accept it. You would gladly accept it. And I realized in that moment that that's exactly how God sanctifies us. That's how God makes us more like him. That God uses trials and suffering and pain to make us more like Jesus. And if we knew what God knew, if we had his perspective outside of time, seeing the end, if we knew that, then we would gladly accept it. Now, we must be willing to acknowledge that God's ways are infinitely better than ours to do that. And unlike us, God does not make mistakes. The gospel calls us to lay down our ways of doing things, our perceived control and our understanding of the world to take, uh, to, to, and to take up a deep commitment to trust God that he has both his glory and our good at heart. Proverbs 3 verses 5 through 8 says this, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your, to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Our own understanding is dimly lit at best and lacking perspective. If we knew what God knew, we would gladly accept what he has for us. It doesn't mean we have to enjoy it, but we would gladly accept it for the, for the end. So what does this mean for us? When we are personally feeling alone or outcasted, God sees and knows and is sanctifying us to be conformed to the image of his son. And this means two things. One, that we can rest assured that when we submit to the spirit and hardship, we are growing to more, look more like Jesus and that there's a purpose to our suffering. It's not just arbitrary. And two, when we submit to the spirit and hardship, we are being used by God to shine light against a contra contrasted darkness in our world. This leads me to point number three. The gospel anchors us for obedience in a land of chaos. First Peter 1, uh, First Peter 1, 2 again says this, for the foreknowledge of God the Father, for, uh, for the sanctification of the Spirit, and for obedience to Jesus Christ and the sprinkling with his blood. The sprinkling of his blood is significant here because this was the act that the high priest utilized according to the law of God in the Holy of Holies on the mercy seat. So the blood of the lamb, so if you had a spotless lamb, you had the high priest who would walk into the, the innermost area of worship, the Holy of Holies, and there would be a spotless lamb that was, uh, that was slain in order to sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat so that, the, that way the atonement for God's people would be paused or pushed back. This is important because atonement has been made and the wrath of God no longer abides on the Israelites any longer because of their sin for that, uh, for that time. And because of the work of Christ on the cross, we, um, who, was our, who was our great high priest, 
Christ was not just the great high priest that walked in and sprinkled of blood from a lamb, but he was also the lamb. So he resolved the, word, the punishment of sin once and for all. It was no longer something they had to accomplish every year, but instead Christ said, I am not only the high priest that is authorized to go in and sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat, but I am also the lamb that will shed his own blood for it. So because of this work of Christ on the cross, we can also obey God. This obedience is not out of fear of judgment because the judgment that was due for us has been taken care of once and for all on the cross. Jesus' obedience on the cross reminds us that we are never alone in our own obedience. When Jesus was getting ready to be crucified in the Garden of Gethsemane and he was going through excruciating pain, fear, worry, and anxiety, he had a moment, honestly, if you really think about it, he had a moment to abandon what he was called to do. He had a moment to do that, but he didn't. Like you hear it in his language, God, if there's another way, if you can take this cup from me, please let it do so. But nonetheless, not my will, but your will. And for those that are brokenhearted and troubled and suffering, Jesus's obedience in the garden reminds us that when we are suffering and our prayers aren't answered or we're tempted to feel abandoned by God, that we know that if he didn't abandon us in the garden under those circumstances, that he's not going to abandon us now. God is forever with us. We obey freely because we have been set free and that this ultimate love for us opens the doors for believers in Christ to experience the sweetness of God's will for us. Moreover, our imperfect obedience as a lamp to the world filled with broken stories and is a sweet aroma to our God who delights in our efforts at holiness. This type of faithfulness is critical in a chaotic world today, in a corrupt world today. Paul warned us that people would be tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine, that they would heap up for themselves teachers that would scratch their itching ears. He made it clear that people are going to do that, and we kind of see that now today. And as a parent, this scares me to death to raise kids in this day and age with this trajectory. And the best that you, me, and all of us can offer is teaching our kids faithful, honest, joy-filled obedience to the Lord regardless of what we're faced with. And that to teach the next generation, and I use that specifically in case, you're, in case you either don't have kids or that you're single, that imparting the gospel to the next generation is one of the greatest tasks that you can ever take a hold of because it ensures that the gospel will go past you one of, the, one of the great and tragic stories in the Old Testament is that time after time you would see good king, great king, faithful king, terrible king. Why? Because it was not given to the next generation in, a way, in the way that it should have. So one of the best things that we can do is to teach the next generation, whether that's your kids or someone else's, that God's commandments are not burdensome, but they bring life. Brings me to my last point, number four. The gospel provides us with grace and peace in a land of uncertainty. And so these last two verses end like this. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. So apart from this being a common greeting, Peter knows that in times of difficulty and strife, we need two very important things. The first one is grace. We need to receive grace. And be reminded that grace from God has been extended to us. And that this grace that we receive from God 
allows us to extend it to others. We have to receive it from God first in order to do that. We cannot extend what we do not have. If you're going to, if you find yourself in a difficult place being able to extend grace to other people, you first have to ask the question, are you receiving grace from God? The answer is yes, but are you acknowledging it? Are you acknowledging that you need it? Do you know that you are also a sinner and that you have made mistakes and that grace has been extended to you on the cross? Because if you understand that, then extending grace becomes very easy because we're all underneath one banner of needing to repent and believe in Christ. And if that's true, then extending grace is easy. The second thing that we need is peace. We need peace from God. And that this peace from God will give us the ability to extend peace to other people and make peace with other people, despite the fact that they may be different. We can't offer what we haven't received. That oftentimes we don't try to make peace with other people because there is chaos in our heart. That we, we're not attempting to make peace with other people because we have not experienced peace ourselves. And so Peter, in his letter, makes it very clear that these two things are very important, that grace and peace must happen with each other. They cannot happen apart. And though trial may come upon us, there is peace promised to us on this side of heaven. I mean, think about who's writing this letter. I mean, if there is ever a man that would have inner turmoil and inner chaos, it was Peter. Peter, we know he was a lowly fisherman who constantly felt like he was unworthy. We know that he was married. We know that he was a that he was a hothead trying to cut people's ears off in the garden. We know that he constantly was trying to intervene between Jesus and God's will to the point where Jesus looks at him and says, get behind me, Satan. We know that he, uh, he goes to the, you know, in the book of Galatians and he you know, gives partiality to a particular group over, one or the, over the other, which at that time would have been seen as a bigot. We know that Peter denied Jesus three times. And we know, we're, let, let us be reminded that when Jesus said, if you deny me publicly, I will also deny you. And Peter did that, not once, not twice, but three times, denied Jesus. And here he is as a good man who also stood up to preach the gospel and 3,000 people get saved, raised Tabitha from the dead. A good man who loves Jesus here is a man who has all the reason to have inner turmoil, turmoil and inner chaos, but instead he's saying, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. And the truth is, is that if there's room for Peter at the cross, there's room for you. Peter is evidence of and is reminding us that grace and peace are not only available to us, but because of Jesus, they are multiplied. They are true evidences of peace. That it... And that doesn't mean that everything will go away, but it does mean that, that there is peace offered in the midst of your trial. More than that, that God has promised to be with us in trial and that our allegiance and trust in him will be our strength in a time of need. And I'm closing with this. Psalm 73, verses 23 through 26 says this. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. And this is David writing to, writing to the Lord. I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire, desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. 
We live in a land that is riddled with strife, chaos, corruption, and uncertainty. The church, us, we get to be a light into this world by standing against the message that the world preaches by receiving the truth of the gospel and the grace and peace that comes with it. And that the church glorifies God when she holds high the grace and peace offered in the Lord Jesus. That grace this morning and peace is extended to each and every one of us. And the result of receiving this grace of God is the peace of God. We can argue all we want that our hearts are anxious because of what we're going through, but the truth is is that it's much, much deeper. We are anxious not merely because of the chaos around us, but because our souls aren't fully acknowledging that we are not in control. We feel the turmoil of the heart because we ultimately feel that we must be the ones to right all of our wrongs. We don't acknowledge that Christ, he righted every wrong on the cross. We feel breaks in our soul because we are not perfectly obedient. Friends, this morning you have a God that is both near to you and is extending grace and peace and multiplying it to you this morning. My prayer this morning is not only that you receive it, but that you so trust in Christ that it is multiplied to you this morning. Would you pray with me? With your eyes closed right now, I, I would just ask that you would consider some of those areas that maybe you're not trusting the Lord with, whether it be job, whether it be family, friends, whatever it may be. Think about those things. Allow those things to come to the forefront of your mind and your heart and give them to the Lord. Let him have the reins over your life. Father God, we, uh, we are so grateful that we've been welcomed into the family of God and that because of your cross, we get to stand here freely and worship you. And God, if there's anyone underneath the sound of my voice that has not experienced that, God, I pray uh, that you would make their heart alive. God, that their heart of stone would go to a heart of flesh, that they would walk from darkness to light to experience the grace and mercy that is freely offered to them this morning. And God, we are so thankful that your son was obedient uh, for us on the cross on our behalf. God, that you were in control, that you were molding and shaping us to be more like you. So God, this morning we ask, would you meet us where we're at? Would you help us to receive the grace and peace that is offered and multiplied to us this morning? We need you. This is impossible to do on our own. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.